Welcome to the Crossview Church Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy the message this morning. For more information, visit us at mycrossview.com. Well, welcome. It's so good to see all of you this morning in person and those of you who are joining us online. It's a little odd for me to be in the front of the church. I'm usually back there on my laptop, so I love seeing the faces. It's really great. So over the last four weeks, gosh, can you believe we're in the fourth week of Advent? Wow, Christmas is coming up next Sunday, and I'm not quite ready for it, but it's coming anyway, and it's, it's great. But over the last four weeks, it's been such an amazing journey. We've been talking about the story of Jesus, and, and I love that we've been looking at it through Jesus as a real person from a real place, a real family. The story of Jesus and his family history tells us a lot about the heart of God as he reached out to us in his son, Emmanuel, God with us. We've just been focusing on how much God is with us. So we learned that Jesus' family tree is full of real people with real weaknesses and stories of their own. God chose a family to focus on and he named them Israel after the name that he gave Jacob. Now, Pastor Holly shared with us a couple of weeks ago that the name Israel literally means one who wrestles with God. And that's been our story from the beginning, hasn't it? We've been wrestling with God for control over our lives And I love what Pastor Holly said about, don't look too close into your family tree. I'm liable to find a horse thief in there. Or you might find something worse in there. Um, You know, the other thing we tend to do is we tend to brush over some things, things that are kind of messy that we don't like to talk about. Doesn't paint a very good picture of who we are as a family. And we choose to ignore some people who may not have done anything wrong, but had wrong done to them. That doesn't make the family look too good. That doesn't make some people in the family look too good. So we're just going to leave them unspoken and unseen and just move forward. So today we're going to take another look at Jesus' family tree. But this time, we're going to go back and we're going to look at the ones who often go unseen. So... We're going to see them as God sees them. So we're going to see them, and we're going to see them as God sees them. So we need to, uh, the genealogy of Jesus is found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. And the thing that's really interesting about this genealogy, if you look at it in the eyes of the people of that time and that culture, it's actually very unusual You know, we look at a genealogy and we're just like, oh, so boring. I just want to get on to the story, you know, but it it had a purpose. And what's unusual about this genealogy is that women are mentioned in it. So the purpose of the genealogy was to track inheritance, and that went down through the male line. So in this context, women were completely irrelevant. So Jesus' genealogy has not one not two, but five women mentioned in it. So that's worth paying attention to. Let's take a look. 
So Matthew chapter 1, starting with verse 1, and I'm reading from the Common English Bible, so that might be a different translation than you're used to. A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Okay, so who was Tamar? Well, that's where the story starts to get interesting. To learn about Tamar, we have to go back to Genesis 38. This is one of those stories in the Old Testament that just leaves you scratching your head. I'm not going to read it all to you, but I am going to give you the highlights. So the Bible says that Judah married his oldest son, Ur, to a woman named Tamar. But the Lord considered Judah's oldest son, Ur, immoral, and the Lord put him to death. Other translations say that Ur was evil in the sight of the Lord. This was not a good guy. So Judah then stepped up to the plate as the patriarch of the family and told his second son, Onan, to, perver- to pr- perform his duty to his brother, as brother-in-law to Tamar and help raise up offspring for his brother to continue his family line. Basically, Tamar was going to become like a second wife to him so that she could hopefully conceive a son with him and his brother's family line would continue. This would also ensure that Tamar was taken care of. Because, see, back then, women didn't have any provision or status on their own. They were provided for through the men in their family. Well, as it turns out, Onan was just as evil as his brother, and so God put him to death, too. He wasn't interested in providing for Tamar, for carrying on his brother's family lineage. And at this point, Judah was supposed to give Tamar to his youngest son, Shalah but he didn't do it. Judah was afraid of losing his only remaining son because obviously this woman was bad luck. Yeah. So he actually sent Tamar away back to her father's house saying it's just until Shelah grows up. But here's the thing is Judah was shirking his responsibility Tamar belonged to his household. She was his responsibility. He should be the one to provide for her. But he sent her back to her father's house. He basically discarded her. Tamar had no power in this situation. She wasn't free to be given to another husband because she was still bound by marriage to Judah's family. But God is serious about caring for the widow. Did you know that in the law, he actually gave her a voice and a way to stand up for herself in this situation? If her brother-in-law refused to marry her? So in Deuteronomy 25, 7 through 10, it says that the widow in this case, whose brother-in-law is refusing, she could go to the city gate, which was the main gathering place of that time, and she could call him out in front of the elders and the whole community, And now, see, what was supposed to happen is the elders were then supposed to to put the pressure on the boy. Do the right thing. Marry the widow. And if he refused, this is my favorite part of this, if he refused, she was permitted to rip the sandal off his foot and spit in his face 
and say, thus it is done for the person who will not build up his own brother's family. Yeah, and the Bible goes on to say, if that weren't enough, the Bible goes on to say that subsequently that man's family will be known throughout Israel as the house of the removed sandal. Yeah, to give the woman who had no status in society the right to pull off a man's sandal publicly like this was a public shaming. And it signified the breaking of the contract between them. So according to Jewish tradition, she was now free to marry whomever she chose. So that's great. But the problem that Tamar had was, in this case, it was Judah, the head of the family, who wasn't stepping up. He didn't want his son to marry her. He was the authority figure, and he had all the power in the situation, and she didn't have any recourse at all. So Tamar took matters into her own hands. She disguised herself by changing out of her widow's garments and putting on a veil to hide her face. She sat by the road as Judah was coming through to shear his sheep, and he thought she was a prostitute. So I'm gonna let you read the rest of that story on your own, but we're gonna fast forward a few weeks when Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant and oh, he's actually the father. He said something really interesting at this point. He said, she is more righteous than I. Okay, that's what makes us scratch our heads, right? What? Okay, I, I get that she was, you know, I feel bad for Tamar, but I, I, I don't get how that's righteous. Do you know what she did? So here's the thing. Judah was supposed to provide for Tamar. Instead, he chose to discard her. And in that moment, Judah knew. He knew that he was the one who was wrong in this situation. He knew that his behavior was disgraceful and displeasing to God. So God blessed Tamar with two sons, twin boys, Perez and Zerah, and Perez went on to become the ancestor of Jesus. So we tend to think about Judah being chosen out of all of Jacob's sons to be honored by God, to be an ancestor of the Messiah. But here's what I got to wondering as I was reading all this and thinking of this and writing this message was, was it really about Judah being chosen by God, or was it about Tamar? Maybe that was the decision-making process. Okay, that's going to explode your brains, and you can think about that later tonight when you can't sleep. You're welcome. So the other interesting thing is where the story occurs in the Bible. It's right in the middle of the story of Joseph. We read about Joseph, about his prophetic dreams, about his brothers getting jealous and selling him into slavery. We read that he gets sold to Potiphar, and we get to the end of that chapter, then all of a sudden, here's this really weird story about Judah and Tamar. And then the story of Joseph resumes. What was that about? God interrupt, interrupted the story that laid the groundwork for the entire history of the nation of Israel to tell us about Judah and Tamar. Without this story, we would have never known who Tamar was. 
that God made her known to us. God made us see her. So let's keep reading in the genealogy. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Wait, that's just a coincidence, right? It's not that Rahab, is it? That Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho? That can't be right. Yeah, that's right. Rahab was the one who hid the spies on her roof, the ones that Joshua sent to check out the defensive situation of Jericho before they were going to go in and take over. And she hid them on her roof under the stalks of flax that were there. She even lied to the king of Jericho, saying, yeah, they were here, but then they left. She went to them and she said, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Terror over you has overwhelmed us. She went on to say, the Lord your God is God on, in heaven above and on the earth below. And she made a deal with the spies to spare the lives of her and her whole family when they came back to destroy Jericho. So Rahab, as we, many of us know, and as I said, was labeled a prostitute. And she may have been that, but that's likely not all she was. The Bible said that she hid the spies under the flax stalks that she had laid out on her roof. Flax was an extremely important crop back then. It was used to make linen. And perhaps Rahab was also a businesswoman of another kind, making linen cloth or garments and selling them to everybody who came from all over the world at that time. I mean, she'd obviously heard the stories about what God did for and through his children Israel. <clears throat> and her house was built into the city wall. So it was a place where foreigners came to regularly from all over, and probably not for just one reason. The other things that Rahab likely was got brushed under the carpet, and she was known primarily as a prostitute. The other things went unseen. So Rahab was also bold and audacious, I mean, when you think about it, she knew that the God of the Israelites was, in her words, God in heaven above and on earth below. And she boldly, brazenly asked the spies to save her and her whole family, to save them from death, just like she saved them. Their lives were in her hands. She turned away from her country and her people to the God who could deliver them. And she knew, she knew that God could deliver them. This is the woman who God chose to honor. So let's see who's next in the family tree. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Oh, the story of Boaz and Ruth is a beautiful story. Ruth has a book in the Bible named after her. And her story is, is it's similar in a lot of ways to Rahab's when you think about it. And that may have been why Boaz had such a tender heart toward her. Rahab was his mom. Now, both Rahab and Ruth were foreigners. Ruth wasn't a prostitute, but she was labeled the Moabitess because she was from Moab, not Israel. She was 
fiercely devoted to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who had lost everything while living in, in Moab, lost her husband and her sons. And Ruth followed her back to Bethlehem to take care of her. There's so much more to that story. But Ruth went from being the Moabitess to being the wife of Boaz and the great-grandmother of David. So the next woman that we come to in the family tree wasn't actually mentioned by name. That's Bathsheba. But she's mentioned as the wife of Uriah. Her name isn't in there. We heard about her, didn't we, in the sermon series on David a few weeks ago. Now, David did a terrible thing to Bathsheba. She was a married woman, and he had her taken from her home by his men, brought to the palace so that he could sleep with her. He abused her, brought shame to her, and and, and he just sent her away. There was nothing she could do about that. And when David discovered that Bathsheba was pregnant, he went to great lengths to hide what he had done, to keep his secret from getting out. Because we don't talk about those things, right? He went so far as to have her husband Uriah killed on the battlefield. Now, Bathsheba eventually became one of David's wives, but not before he totally, utterly destroyed her life. So when I read the mention of her in the genealogy of Matthew as the wife of Uriah, I realize that God was restoring her identity and her honor. He was not letting her story go unspoken or be hidden away. It's one of those little secrets that we don't talk about. He saw her and he honored her. Her son Solomon became king after David, and God gave him great wisdom. He wrote most of the book of Proverbs. Some are credited to other people. But in Proverbs 31, it says it was written by King Lemuel, but there's, there's no record of a King Lemuel in Israel. Some scholars believe that this actually was a name for Solomon. Being a poetic kind of book, it kind of followed this, you know, Solomon didn't refer to himself by name. You know, he, he used little things to refer to himself, and this may have been a pet name from his mother. But scholars, some scholars believe that this was, was actually Solomon. And if that's true, then the mother spoken of in these verses was Bathsheba. And that's a really interesting lens to look through. Proverbs 31, 1 through 9 says... The words of King Lemuel, which his mother taught him. No, my son, no son of my womb, no son of my solemn promises, don't give your strength to women, your ways to those who wipe out kings. It isn't for kings, Lemuel, it isn't for kings to drink wine, for rulers to crave strong drink. Otherwise they will drink and forget the law and violate the rights of the needy. Give strong drink to those who are perishing and wine to those whose hearts are bitter. Let them drink and forget their poverty and no longer remember their toil. Speak out on behalf of the voiceless 
and for the rights of all who are vulnerable. Speak out in order to judge with righteousness and to defend the needy and the poor. We could definitely make a case for Bathsheba feeling passionate about those things, couldn't we? And teaching her son to remember those things. So much so that those words were still ringing in his ears. These words are in the Bible because they show us the tender heart of God. God who cares for the weak, for the helpless, for the unseen. So now, going through all of that, now we come to the last woman mentioned in this family lineage of Jesus. We come to Mary. Mary wasn't a woman with a label or a past. She wasn't a foreigner. She was just a regular, ordinary girl who had a heart for God. There's nothing recorded about Mary's life up to this point that would single her out for this honor. As near as we could tell, she was just a girl who did her best, did her best to honor God with her life. She didn't do anything outstanding that we know of. She was unseen in another way. She was just normal, ordinary, unremarkable. God saw her, and he came to her in an amazing way that changed her life and changed the whole world forever. She was so overcome by this encounter with God that she broke out into song. And these verses, um, we call these verses in the Bible the Magnificat. And let's, let, let's take a look at part of that. In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 50, it says, With all my heart I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. Mary had a special honor that set her apart from every other human being on this earth, then and now. She had the closest, most intimate, longest relationship with Jesus than anyone else. So, that's amazing when you think about it, when you really dwell on that. And God singled her out, this unremarkable, unseen young girl, for this purpose. And then that makes me think of another woman much, much further back in Jesus' family tree, in all of our family trees. makes me think of Eve. Eve was credited with bringing sin into the world an impossibly heavy shame to bear. But now God was lifting that shame, lifting that burden off of her by bringing his son into the world through her descendant, a young woman named Mary. This morning we lit the candle of love. 
celebrating the tender love of God displayed to us in Jesus. Jesus was a real person from a real family at a real point in time. He had a real story to tell. When we come to know Jesus as Savior, we become part of that family. We become part of the story. Jesus invites each of us. He invites each of us to be part of his family. He's inviting you right now. If you've never said yes to Jesus before, I extend my hand to you and I say, come, be part of our family. We see you and we welcome you in. Let's pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed when we look at how much you love us. When we realize that you see us. And for those who have never given their hearts to you, I just invite you to pray these words after me. If you would like to stop wrestling with God, if you would like to come and be part of this family, please pray with me now. Lord Jesus, you're real. You know us. You know how we suffer. You know how I've suffered. I've been resisting you for so long. And now that I see who you really are, I want to stop resisting. And I say yes. And I take the hand that you are holding out to me. And I turn away from trying to do this on my own. And I come into your family. Thank you for welcoming me in. And for all those who have hurts that they bring with them today, this morning, those who feel unseen, those maybe who have been abused, Lord, I just ask for you to pour your love into each heart that you would do an amazing work of healing, that you would fill their hearts with joy and love to overflowing, Lord, that we might even break out in song like Mary did. Thank you, Lord, for being with us. Thank you for being Emmanuel, God with us. In your name we pray.